follow Jesus in this messy world. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to be able to sing, to give, to pray, to worship together in fellowship with one another to you. And God, it's our desire that you are glorified and exalted in all that we do. And as we come to the preaching of the word, the same is true, God. We want you to be lifted up and exalted. It's exciting to hear what you have done and what you do for us. But God, may you get all the praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't, uh, I don't remember exactly what age I was some preteen number there, but I, I do remember my mom presenting me with my very first uh, stick of deodorant. She handed it to me, and I said, what's this? And she said, it's deodorant. You rub it under your arms after you take a shower. And I asked, why? And she gently and graciously replied, because you stink. You can see my mom was, you know, always very careful with her wording and taking care of my fragile emotions and, and so forth. But uh, she went on to explain, you know, as you get older, uh, you know, uh, your underarms start sweating and nobody wants to smell that. So you use this. Well, it turns out, I find out that uh, people have been trying to mask body odors for centuries. The ancient Egyptians are credited with being the first to try to do something about it uh, formally. They supposedly are the ones who invented the perfumed bath. And, and so they would take these perfumed baths and then after the bath, they would rub liberal amounts of the perfume under their arms. Uh, they tried a number of different things. They tried uh, using carob, if you know what carob is. Uh, we saw some of that growing when we were over in Israel. Uh, they... they uh, um, uh, tried uh, incense and, and and even porridge as a deodorant. I'm not sure, you know, rubbing oatmeal under your arms, I'm not sure how that works, but uh, they did that. Uh, some Egyptian women would get scented wax, you know, the pretty scented waxes, and, and they'd put a glob of that on their head, and then through the day that would melt and, and, and give off that, you know, perfumed smell, uh, and, and then would, you know, cover up less pleasant smells uh, from the body, which were, it was effective, but kind of messy. And um, they did that. The, the ancient Greeks, they took a page from the Egyptians, uh, constantly bathing and, and dousing themselves in perfume. And, and the Romans were, were actually fanatical uh, about smelling good. So they not only took baths in, in these perfumed baths, but they soaked their clothes in it. They would douse their horses in it and even perfume their household pets uh, in this effort to smell good. And of course, we know the Jews, right? And in, in Jesus' day, if a Jewish person was hosting a dinner party not only were they supposed to provide for the washing of you know dirty skanky feet to get rid of that odor but then they would also provide perfumed oil to put on the head so that it would kind of mask some of the other odors uh, coming off of the body unfortunately things took a, a rather stinky turn in the middle ages where a why bother attitude seemed to prevail and only the very 
only the very rich and, and social elite, you know, the top 1%, uh, they were the only ones that did anything about body odor. And the rest of the people just decided we're just going to live with the smell. And you know what? It pretty much stayed that way all the way into the 1800s. In fact, it was in America, Philadelphia, uh, that uh, someone in 1888 uh, first... Uh, um, invented and then trademarked and commercially produced a deodorant. And it was called mum, uh, like mum's the word idea. And uh, it was a paste, like toothpaste that you would stick on your finger and rub under your arms. It didn't, you know, didn't catch on real well, uh, but, but that was the first one being spread around. Uh, deodorants didn't really uh, start to get widely used by the general populace until the 1950s. And at that time, Inspired by the ballpoint pen, a woman who was probably tired of smelling her husband invented the first roll-on deodorant that a company called Bristol Myers bought and called Ban, Ban Roll-On. And the trouble with Ban, some of you uh, are familiar with it, is it went on wet and sticky and took forever to dry. So then you're walking around like this, you know, for about five minutes after you put it on. You can't put your clothes on, otherwise your shirt's going to stick to your underarms with that. So it wasn't actually until the 1960s when Gillette invented the first aerosol deodorant called Right Guard. That's when things really took off. And now, uh, and now... Uh, the deodorant uh, industry is a multi-billion dollar business, all because nobody wants to stink. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, Pastor Mark, that's a, that's a fascinating history of pit juice. <laughs> but what does that have to do with the Bible? Well, just this. According to the Apostle Paul, no matter what we might do by way of deodorants or antiperspirants or, or perfumes or any of that kind of stuff, uh, no matter what we do, everybody is going to smell us. And for some, that's going to be a good and pleasant thing. For others, not so much. Now, before we get to our text, let's, let's set the stage for it this morning. You, you probably remember from uh, previous messages that there were some serious problems going on in the church in the city of Corinth. And Paul wrote to them uh, a letter that uh, scholars have dubbed the severe letter, chastising them for their faithlessness and challenging them to deal with the sin uh, and the false teachers that were in their midst and, and, and uh, that they needed to take care of that. And in addition... He also sent a trusted co-worker to them, a guy named Titus, uh, to go and personally observe what was happening in Corinth and how they received the letter and how they would respond to that. And then he was supposed to bring back a report to Paul about everything he saw. And, and as I was preparing uh, this message this week, niggling around in the back of my memory, I think when I mentioned that in a previous sermon, I think I said it was Timothy that he sent. Uh, and if I said that, that was a mistake. Uh, it's actually Titus. Titus was the man. Uh, he's the one that went to Corinth. Uh, Paul was in the city of Ephesus, and he was strengthening and establishing the church there. But apparently, he had made plans with Titus that afterwards they would meet at the city of Troas so that Paul could get his update. 
And, and then that's where we pick up the story in our text this morning. Uh, chapter 2 of Second Corinthians, starting at verse 12, Paul says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door opened for me in the Lord, so I'm going to stop right there, uh, they picked Troas as the meeting point of the city, not only because it was, you know, in between Uh, Ephesus and Corinth, but because it seemed like a a good rendezvous point because Paul knew that this was a city that he wanted to evangelize in and thought that'd be a perfect place to wait for Titus. And so sure enough, he went there and it says God opened a door for him there. And we don't know exactly what that means, but we can assume that it means at the very least that God provided him a place to stay, probably somebody's home, to be, to be his, his home base of operations, and that people were coming to Jesus Christ. Um, there's no record in the book of Acts of the church getting started in Troas, but later on in the book of Acts when Paul goes back there, there was a church there. And so, most likely, it was at this time that that church got its start. That's what Paul was there evangelizing, waiting for Titus, but there was a problem. Um, uh, And and that problem was hindering Paul. Look at verse 13. He says, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So see, Paul was just very deeply concerned about all that was going on in the church in Corinth. I mean, there were problems there. And, and he had no word about what was happening. He had no idea if they had accepted his letter and followed through on that or if they had rejected it. Uh, would they stay true to God or, or would they drift away, you know, being led askew by these false teachers? Titus was uh, supposed to be in Troas to give him his update, but he hadn't shown up yet. Uh, where, where was he? Was there trouble? Had something happened to Titus? What was going on in the church? All, all these questions were plaguing Paul's heart and mind so that he had no rest in his spirit. And, and Titus hadn't even bothered to send a text to let him know what's going on. He had no idea what was happening. And, and so he, 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 this concern was just beginning to overwhelm him. And, and so finally, Paul couldn't stand it any longer. And, and even though there was this effective ministry going on in Troas, his spirit was just so agitated with with concern that he took off for Macedonia in an attempt to find Titus, which is, you know, even closer to the city of Corinth. And that's where the narrative stops. Paul's telling us what he's doing, how he's going there, where he's heading, and then it stops. If you keep reading in, in the text... He doesn't tell us any more about that, not for a long time. He just goes off on verse 14 in a seemingly random tangent that that doesn't appear to have any real connection with what he's been talking about. Take, Take a look at verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. So see, Paul switches from being agitated in spirit, deeply concerned uh, and troubled about what was going on in Corinth, so much so that he's, he, he, he had no rest in his spirit and, and he's picking up stakes and heading out of Troas and leaving for Macedonia. He's leaving this prearranged meeting place, going off searching for Titus, hoping to find him. And he switches from that to thanking God for always leading us in triumph. 
do those two things seem to go together in your mind? Well, I believe there is a connection, but I think for us to fully understand it, we have to do a little research into the imagery that Paul is using here. And that phrase leads us in triumph um, is not just a random wording about, you know, victory. It was a, a reference to an actual event that all of Paul's readers would have been familiar with uh, back at that time. The triumph was the highest military honor that a Roman general could hope to achieve. And he had to meet all kinds of conditions in order to, to get this honor. Uh, but Paul was not really interested in the conditions at this point. It was the actual event of the triumph. The leading in triumph was the, the name of it. The, the event uh, which uh, was a procession or what we would call a parade. And, and it went like this. The politicians would come first. You know, the senators and all the state officials. And they'd be riding in their convertibles, giving the parade wave, you know you know, like this. And they didn't really mean anything because they didn't do anything. So nobody really paid attention to them. But that was just to let people know the parade was starting. And so all the politicians went by. After the politicians would come a troop of trumpeters and they'd be blasting out this music. And that was letting the crowds know. And it would, the, the triumph always drew huge crowds. And that was letting them know, man, this is really, the good stuff is coming now. And after the, the, uh, the trumpeters would go by, then there would be, uh, come a display of all the spoils of war. Piled up on carts would be all the, uh, the spoils that they had gotten. And sometimes uh, slaves would be carrying individual pieces so that everybody could see all that was stolen from the conquered lands and they could ooh and awe over all the riches and the, and, and the, the different pieces that were there. And, and also then following that would come pictures. Uh, they would have like charcoal drawings uh, of uh, the territories that had been conquered so people could see what it was and where it was in relation. And they would have great big models, replicas built of ships or citadels or cities that had been destroyed by the army so the people could see that this is what had happened. And then after uh, that, there was a large white bull that was being led along, and that bull was going to be sacrificed as part of the victory celebration. And then after the bull would come all the wretched captives, and, and not, not, not all the common people that were going to be turned into slaves, but, but rather mostly it was the, the uh, po- political and military leaders of the country that was, was conquered, the, the princes, the king, um, the royalty, and any other heads of state and all that type of stuff. They would be forced to walk in humiliation in front of all the jeering and hissing crowds at this point. And they would do what they could to humiliate them. Sometimes they would strip them naked and put them in chains and make them walk behind the bowl. Other times they would actually put their feet bound together so they couldn't walk and they would be drugged through the dirt of the streets. And, and at the end of the parade, then they were either tossed in prison or most often publicly executed to show the final victory over this country. And, and again, the crowds were just hissing and jeering through all of that. But after that, 
came the marching band. They, they would have a great big uh, musical part here because now they were getting ready to really honor this general, the one who was getting the triumph. And, and so the band would come and people would switch from, from the jeering and hissing to cheering and, and shouting hurrahs. And, and after the band, all the pagan priests would follow that and they had censers in their hands. And they'd be swinging these censers back and forth. They were full of burning incense so that this uh, scented smoke would be billowing up and, and out uh, of that. And, um, and that was supposed to be the sweet smell uh, of success. And in that cloud uh, of scented uh, smoke would come the general himself, the, the man who was being honored as victor and conquering hero. He would be riding in a chariot pulled by four horses, and, and there would be slaves on either side of him, uh, behind, behind him in the chariot on either side, holding palm fronds over the top of him. So he would be shaded from the, the sun and... and uh, behind him would be a, a, a third slave and he would be holding over the top of his head. Uh, um, so it wasn't resting on him, but just over the top of his head, the crown uh, of Jupiter. And, and the general would be wearing all purple, purple, the, the color of royalty, because he's being honored here. He'd have a, a, a purple tunic with um, uh, palm fronds in, embroidered in gold threads uh, on that and then a purple toga over the top of that with golden stars on top of that and in his hand he would have this ivory scepter with the the roman emblem the eagle on top of the uh, scepter in gold and he would be carrying that through the streets on on this chariot as he's riding a very impressive a spectacular sight and the crowds would go wild cheering on this hero of victory and behind him uh, his family got to bask in this glory at all as well so they would all be coming uh, following right behind the chariot and then the final piece of the parade would come in the entire army from from the very least foot soldier to, to the highest ranking official in the army. They would all come marching in in columns behind this and, and they would be dressed uh, with any of their awards or honors that they had won on the field of battle would be hanging from them. And, and like the crowds, I mean, they would enjoy the cheering of the crowd too, but like the crowds, they were directing their voice to honor the general, because as they were becoming in, this entire army would be shouting out, Io triumphe, which basically means hurrah for the triumph, the victory. And even if there was no breeze that day, just the commotion of the, the army marching in afterwards and shouting this out, the, that smoke from the censures would just be spread throughout the crowd. And this whole parade would end up in front of Caesar and his palace because, obviously, Caesar ruled over all things and therefore he was the head, the lead of the triumph. And that's the picture that Paul was using in this text. He's giving us an illustration, but what did that illustration mean exactly? Well, look again at verse 14. But thanks be to God 
who always leads in triumph. God is the ruler and leader over all. He is the real Caesar, right? The universal king. And he leads in triumph, it says, in Christ. Meaning that Jesus Christ is the general who has won the victory. Christ is the one that is being honored. We are the army that is following behind, shouting out hurrah for the victory. Hence, we are being led in triumph. Now, how does that tie in to those previous verses where Paul was talking uh, about his agitated spirit and, and all this kind of stuff? And I think it's like this. Even in the midst of the trials and hardships and concerns of life in this messy world, Jesus is leading us in triumph. He has already won the war. He is the victor. We are following Him in that victory. And and yes, I understand that the ultimate final triumph is yet to come, but that glorious outcome is so certain that Paul is able to speak about it in the past tense. We are able to think about it as a done deal. And how might that certainty, the certainty of that triumph, change the way we feel and act and react as we face and handle the hardships of this life. You see, I think that's why Paul broke off in the middle of his report about what he was doing there. He had been explaining his heart. He had been talking and describing about what was going on with all the cares and concerns that had weighed him down. But he didn't want to leave the impression that this was some oh, woe is me type of moment. See, even in the anguish of his spirit, he is reminded that we are on the winning side. We walk in triumph. Ultimately, we prevail. And so he had to stop and, and, and thank God to help him and the Corinthians and us to keep the right perspective. We win. No matter what it looks like in this messy world, we win. Now, as Christ's army, our duty is not physical fighting on the battlefield. Look at what it says. And manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. See, just like the the smoke from the incense that permeated the crowds, Jesus is using us to spread the knowledge of God in every place. Verse 15 goes on to explain that just a little bit more. It it says this, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So in the last verse, he called us a sweet aroma. In this verse, it says a fragrance. Both of those words call to mind a very pleasant scent. I remember one spring when I was at a conference down in Denver and uh, uh, the hotel that I was staying at was lined, decorated out front by being lined with this, this whole double row of, of 
crabapple trees. And I was there at the perfect time so that they were in full bloom. And so I was waiting for a guy that was going to pick me up. I was outside. It was warm. The sun was shining. It was in the morning. It was perfectly still. There was no breeze. And so I walked back under those trees. And because there's no breeze, the, the scent just cascaded down on me. I never smelled it so strongly before. It was powerful. And it was wonderful. It smelled so good, I didn't want to have to leave. That scent, that aroma uh, filled up my senses, and for a moment, it was really all I could think about. That's kind of the idea of this verse. We are the fragrance, but instead of being a scent of apple blossoms, right? According to verse 15, it says we are a scent of Christ. It says the fragrance of Christ. So in other words, when people draw in that scent, they shouldn't think about us. It should cause them to think about Jesus. We're the fragrance of Christ. And then notice who this verse says we're a fragrance to. First of all, it says, a fragrance of Christ to God. Ultimately, to God. The life you are living is a sweet aroma to God of Christ. Now, think about what that means. That means God is sensing and seeing Christ in you. He sees the wonderful work of Christ, the work that forgives your sins and washes you clean. He sees the work that strengthens you for, for daily living and, and prepares you for service. He sees the presence of Christ in you, the presence that leads and guides and directs you in life, the presence that comforts and brings hope and strength. It's the ongoing labor of Jesus on earth through you. That's what God sees. You are the fragrance of Christ to God. So that's first, but notice that's not the end of it. We are also a fragrance of Christ, it says, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So both to Christians and non-Christians, we're a fragrance of Christ. Well, how does that work? Verse 16, to the one... An aroma from death to death to the other. An aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? So to both groups, to uh, those who are, as verse 15 described them, perishing, the aroma is one from death to death. You know, the Bible teaches very clearly the that apart from Jesus Christ, every single person in this world is spiritually dead. Right? Ephesians 2.1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But the aroma of Christ can penetrate even a dead person's life. They can hear the good news of God's love and mercy. They can hear about His forgiveness of sins and salvation. But if they reject that gracious, divine gift from God, then their destiny is eternal death, separated forever from God. And that's what it means to be an aroma from death to death. They were dead in their trespasses, 
and they continue to eternal death, separated from God. They go from spiritually dead to eternally dead. But also, the verse says, there are those who we will walk among and they, they will get a whiff of the scent of Christ from our lives and they will be drawn to Jesus like a bee to a flower. They will accept His gift and experience the truth of every promise that God gives. They will throw themselves upon His mercy and they'll find Him to be merciful. They will seek His grace And that grace will come upon them like an ever-flowing river. They will ask for pardon and they will find that their sins are cast in the deepest sea, never to be remembered again. They will desire life and they will find that the author of life gives it to them abundantly. And they will go from life to life eternal with God forever and ever. That's what it means for us to be an aroma of life to life. We are the fragrance of Christ on earth. And everybody smells us. Now, how they respond to that fragrance determines whether for them it is the fumes of death or an aroma of life. The very fact that God is using us in this way should make us feel awesome. I mean, when we walk out that door, before you walk out that door, with one another, we're the fragrance of Christ to those around us. When you go to work, to school, meet with friends, neighbors, come into contact with people at the store, you are the fragrance of Christ. That is who He has made you be. That, the, the fact that God is using in that, you, that way is just awesome. Of course, that truth could also give us a little bit of a sense of trepidation, couldn't it? I mean, does that put the pressure on us or what? What if I blow it? What if instead of being a sweet aroma, I stink? Well, I think Paul anticipated that question. Maybe he felt the weight of it on his own shoulders. Wherever we go, whatever I'm doing, I am the fragrance of Christ. He might have felt the weight of that on his own shoulders, and so he asks that very penetrating question at the very end, and who, who possibly, who is adequate for these things? How can I be the fragrance of Christ in this world when I'm so weak and frail? That's a great question. If you come back next week, the Apostle Paul has an answer for us. We're going to look at that. But for today, my prayer is that you would be able to walk out of here encouraged, built up, energized by the biblical truth that you are, in fact, a fragrance of Christ to those you meet. That that you would be thinking that as you walk around, that as you go out in your daily activities, you would have that in mind. This is who I am. This is what God made in me. I am the fragrance of Christ to whoever I meet. It's not something that you have to manufacture yourself. 
It's certainly not uh, something you can buy in a roll-on or an aerosol can. It's true because Christ is living in you. His power, His love, His mercy are evident in your life. His unfailing love and goodness through all of our changing circumstances causes us to live and respond in a different way because we know that He is leading us in triumph through all of these things. And therefore, when we walk according to that truth, we are a pleasant aroma of Christ in a messy world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you lead us in triumph. That as we look around and we can see things that are horrible, that are falling apart, that are bad in this world, we can remember that we win, that you triumph, and you're leading us in triumph. And we can walk according to that. And as we do, our lives are the sweet aroma of Christ. Now penetrate us with that truth this week, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.